Pastor Brandon was at a pastor's conference all week this past week, so I have a privilege of uh, being able to share God's word with you this morning. If you have ever been to a cardiologist, you probably know what's involved with a, a, a stress test. They hook you up to a monitor with all of these wires, and then they put you on a treadmill, turning up the speed until the monitor reveals the condition of your heart. All the while, you're walking your legs off trying to keep up with the treadmill. And after several sweaty minutes, the treadmill is turned off and the monitor completes a printed readout. And that helps the cardiologist determine the condition of your heart. Well, in a similar manner, God puts all of his children through stress tests at different times in our lives. And he does this not to precipitate a heart attack, but to give us a diagnosis concerning the condition of our faith and to help strengthen and purify our, our faith. This morning, we are going to study what I believe is the greatest spiritual stress test of all time, next to Christ hanging on the cross. It is a familiar story in Abraham's life that we've studied before, or many of you have studied before. And from his life and godly example, we learn much about how to successfully face the severe trials and struggles and tests in our own lives. And I must tell you that the passage we are about to study is in many ways very disturbing. It has caused me to deeply question God. It has also caused me to examine my love for and allegiance to God, and I think it will do the same for you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, first book of the Bible, chapter 22. I've also included in your bulletin, I think in your bulletin, a passage in Hebrews 11 that's sort of a parallel to this one that I'll be referring to from time to time. My guess is most of you are familiar with Abraham's story, how his wife Sarah was barren through her childbearing years. And then one day when she was 65 years old and Abraham was 75, God came to them and promised that they were going to have a son and he would be the father of a great nation with millions of descendants. So for 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited for this child. And sure enough, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, she gave birth to Isaac. The camp was filled with joy, laughter, and celebration. You can imagine how precious this long-awaited son must have been to them. You know they loved Isaac every bit as much as any of us have ever loved our own children. In fact, it is this love that parents have for their children that makes our passage this morning so graphically powerful and disturbing. Please follow as I read verses 1 through 12 of Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and said, laid it on uh, Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I'm curious, if you had to make a list of the worst possible things that could happen to you, what would be on that list? In my opinion, the death of my children would be at or near the top of that list. Would you all agree? Some of you may may have already been there. The thought of one of my children dying literally takes my breath away. And yet, if you think about it, there are different ways to die. Some are worse than others. There's uh, dying in your sleep painlessly. That is the way I would choose for my child to die if I had to choose. Then there's death by disease or illness. Lots of children today are killed in accidents of one type or another. Then there's all of these school shootings around the country. And there are some who have been kidnapped, tortured, and brutally murdered. I used to think that that would be the worst way for one of my children to die, but now I don't think so. The absolute worst way for one of my children to die would be for me to kill one of them by plunging a knife into their chest, slitting their throats, and setting their bodies on fire as a sacrifice to God. If you can believe it, that is exactly what God is telling Abraham to do in this haunting passage. Of course, one huge question arises out of this passage is, why did God ask Abraham to do such a gruesome thing? We're only given one direct answer in this text. Did you notice verse 1 says it was to test him? Hebrews eleven seventeen says the same thing. This was the ultimate stress test, was it not? On this particular occasion, the spiritual treadmill was turned up to its absolute highest. And as you might imagine, this true story raises some serious questions about the character of God. First of all, how could a loving, compassionate God impose such a cruel test on two of his children, Abraham and Isaac? And then there's the whole question about God's promise to Abraham. Throughout Genesis up to this point, God had promised Abraham that through Isaac he was going to be the father of a great nation, the nation of Israel. So another question that no doubt rattled in Abraham's mind is how could a God who is faithful to his promises seemingly go back on his promise? I mean, if I kill Isaac, how can he become the father of a great nation? But rather than doubting God's character in this ultimate test, Abraham's response is one of complete trust. He knew that God couldn't lie. 
He knew that God was a loving God who would keep his promises. So how did God harmonize, or how did Abraham harmonize these conflicting messages from God? How did he reconcile a dead Isaac with God making Isaac the father of a great nation one day? Well, Hebrews 11 helps us here. Listen as I read verse 19. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That verse begins, Abraham considered. That word considered in the Greek means to think deeply about something. To calculate and meditate on it for a while. Abraham probably stayed up all night wrestling with this dilemma. And this is how he reconciled it in his own mind. If God asks me to kill Isaac, and if Isaac is going to be the father of a great nation one day, then it must be that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And we see very clearly in our Genesis text that Abraham fully expected a resurrection. In fact, look at what he tells his servants back in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So Abraham fully expected to return from Mount Moriah with Isaac alive. What's so amazing about Abraham's faith at this point is that there was no precedent for a resurrection. From all we know in Scripture, God had never raised anyone from the dead up to this point in human history. And yet Abraham knew that God was the all-powerful creator who could do anything he chose to do. And thus, if he had to resurrect Isaac in order to keep his promise, Abraham reasoned that was no problem for God. What faith? We also see here that Abraham fully intended to kill his son. There wasn't any wavering on his part. How do we know that? Because Hebrews eleven nineteen says, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. In other words, as far as Abraham was concerned, the deed was, was done. He had already given up his son. I can still remember as a child, I had a, a Bible story book with pictures. And there was a picture of Abraham with the knife in his hand, midair, ready to plunge it into his son Isaac. So when God stopped him at the last moment with knife in midair, it was the same in Abraham's mind as receiving Isaac back from the dead. Another thing I think is fairly obvious here is that Abraham could not have done this without Isaac's cooperation. Isaac, who was carrying the wood, was probably the stronger of the two. He was certainly faster than his hundred-year-old dad, hundred-plus now. He could have easily run away. So apparently Isaac had decided to obey his father whatever the cost, just as his dad had decided to obey God whatever the cost. The father's faith was alive and well in his son. And they were both trusting God as they displayed radical obedience. As I said earlier, this true story raises some serious questions about the character of God. We've already considered a couple of them. Perhaps the most haunting question is this. How could a holy God ask anyone to violate his revealed will in scripture and sin? I mean, God tells us in his word the murder is sin. And in several Old Testament passages, human sacrifices are considered by God to be evil, pagan, and idolatrous. And yet he commands Abraham here to kill his own son as a sacrifice. How do you explain that? 
I must tell you there aren't any easy answers. Allow me to suggest a couple of things that will help us deal with this disturbing passage. First of all, to my knowledge, this is the only time in the entire Bible God ever commanded such a thing. It is true that he commanded the Israelites to kill all of their enemies on certain occasions, including women and children, as an act of judgment for their evil. But that is different than this. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that God ever commanded another person to kill his or her child besides Abraham. And second, we must also remember that from the very beginning, God knew the outcome. In fact, God planned the outcome. He knew that Isaac was not going to actually die. He knew that he was going to stop Abraham before he actually followed through. So in that sense, a killing did not take place, and God had planned that all along, and such God is vindicated to some extent. But Abraham did not know that. This command still puts Abraham in a moral dilemma, which is difficult to reconcile. Even more haunting. What God is really asking from Abraham here is what he asks from all of us on a regular basis. And that is we be willing to relinquish those people and things that are most precious to us. I'll say more about that later. One of the primary purposes of Abraham's life in the Word of God, both Genesis and Hebrews 11, is to show us how to live by faith. And so I would like to spend the rest of my time this morning sharing several practical faith lessons we, we learn from our passage. The first one is this. Living by faith means you must sometimes do things you dislike intensely. Imagine how repulsive it must have been for Abraham to think about killing his own son. Sometimes obedience to God is not pleasant. Have you noticed? Sometimes it means that you stand up for your faith and values at work and school and you face rejection and ridicule and even some persecution. Sometimes it means leaving a job or moving to another state or or curbing that overeating addiction or fighting some other sinful addiction that you treasure. Sometimes it's severing a relationship that is unhealthy with someone that you love dearly because it's not pleasing to God. At times, obedience to God is the most difficult thing you will ever do because you're giving up someone or something that is precious to you. Lesson two. Living by faith means you acknowledge that God has the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases. This is a tough lesson. We read the story of Abraham and Isaac and our human tendency is to scream, How dare you, God? How dare you take any of your children through such a cruel test? Some of you here this morning are going through a severe stress test right now as I speak. And you might have a tendency to to angrily question God's plan for your life. If that's the case, you probably don't want to hear lesson number two, but you need to. A couple of passages that come to mind. Right after Job had all of his animals and possessions destroyed, and all ten of his children were killed at one time, listen to what he said in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Imagine losing all ten of your children at once and still worshiping God. Right after that amazing statement, God allowed Satan to take away Job's health. His body was covered with these excruciating sores, at which point Job's wife caved in and just encouraged him to curse God and die. There is something about severe physical pain, either with ourselves or with our loved ones, that tempts us to get angry at God, isn't it? You remember Job's response to his wife? Chapter 2, verse 10, he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I asked you that this morning. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Shall we accept all of his blessings but not the trials and the stress tests that he chooses to bring? Abraham realized that Isaac was a precious gift who was on loan to him from God. And thus God had the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases, including taking his child away. And thus we must humbly submit to God's plan. He, God, took all ten of Job's children at once. Thank goodness that is not his normal plan for most people. Amen? No, most of the time, our children outlive us and we get to enjoy them our lifetimes. But not always. Children die. And contrary to what many think today, God's plan is not the plan of a 500-pound gorilla who ruthlessly wreaks havoc in our lives with no rhyme or reason. No, His is the plan of a heavenly father who loves you intensely. And his loving plan for your life is always perfectly, ingeniously designed for your good and his glory. Always. He's not going to let us encounter any trial that is too great for us to handle by his grace. That's a promise we find in 1 Corinthians 10.13. So God has the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases. And that leads to lesson number three. Living by faith means that you must hold earthly things and relationships loosely. Open hands. Before I tell you what it means to hold things and relationships loosely, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we keep people out of distance for fear of losing them. Holding people and things loosely doesn't mean that we refuse to love people too much because God might take them away one day. No, we are to love people in our lives intensely. We husbands are commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Every single one of us is to obey the second greatest commandment in the Bible, which is to sacrificially love your neighbor as you love yourselves, and we're to do that every day. Holding things in our lives loosely doesn't mean that we refuse to enjoy them. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, God has richly blessed us with all things for us to enjoy. So there's nothing wrong with deeply enjoying your family and friends. There's nothing wrong with delighting in your dog or cat or other pets. We should enjoy a delicious meal or beautiful music or the work of an artist. If you like sports or some other hobby, enjoy it to the max as long as you don't worship it. 
We should find a measure of happiness and pleasure in our homes, cars, jobs, and other things God graciously blesses us with. The Bible teaches that God designed sex inside of marriage to bring us great pleasure. I can't tell you, I can't put into words how much I revel in the beauty and majesty of God's creation in nature. It moves me. So holding earthly things and relationships loosely doesn't mean that we don't love and enjoy them. It just means that we don't love and enjoy them too much. The Presbyterians have several doctrinal statements, one of which is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question in that document is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate reason for our human existence? Some of you know the answer that the catechism gives to that question. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you enjoy God? We know the Bible teaches we are to have a healthy fear of God. And we're to love God with our total being. And we're to glorify God in everything we do. But you don't hear a lot of Christians these days talk about enjoying God. Chapter and verse you ask? Numerous ones. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16 verse 11 says about God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Philippians 4 4 says to rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God wants us to find our greatest delight, pleasure, and enjoyment in Him always. And when we don't, when we enjoy God's gifts more than we enjoy the giver, we are guilty of idolatry. All of us here are idolaters at times, are we not? I talk about this often because I believe idolatry is one of our greatest sinful struggles as believers. I, I know it is for me. Every day. One of the reformers well said, our hearts are idle factories. It's not a mistake that this passage today deals with the parent-child relationship and precious Isaac. Those of you who are parents, think for a moment how much you love your children. Do you love God that much and more? Do you find as much joy, fulfillment, and excitement in Christ as you do in your kids? And if it's not your kids, perhaps it's your grandkids or spouse or parents or boyfriend or girlfriend. Idols also come in the form of homes, jobs, cars, hobbies, your electronic devices, pets, sports, physical fitness, food. For many pastors today, their idol is the church and ministry. And as I've already said, there's nothing wrong with loving and enjoying those gifts from God. But living by faith means we must hold those things and relationships loosely. And what I mean by that is that our love for God's gifts must always be secondary to our love for the giver. 
The joy we find in earthly things must always be less than the joy we find in God. We must continually acknowledge that nothing on this planet will satisfy us like God can. And if we look to other people or things or substances substances for our greatest joy and satisfaction, we will be greatly disappointed. Have you noticed? And we've all been there, done that. Holding things loosely means we realize every single day that all of God's gifts are on loan to us and He can take them away at any time except for our salvation. He will never take away our salvation. Thank you, Lord. Amen. And if God chooses to take away something or someone that is precious to you, it doesn't mean that you have to be happy and joyful about it or that you have to like it. No, you won't like it. We will hurt deeply. If it's a family member or a good friend who dies, we grieve and ache and are heartbroken. And the anguish seems unbearable sometimes. Beth and I have some good Christian friends whose young adult son committed suicide a few months ago. And they are still in deep anguish over their loss. And they don't feel like that it's ever going to get better. And these are mature believers in Christ. The pain seems overwhelming. So when we lose someone or something precious to us, we grieve, we ache, we mourn. It's the pain of living in a sin-cursed world. We may even question God. For a time we might get angry at God, but if we are His children, eventually our anger will turn to trust. And in the midst of our pain and loss, we will worship God and love Him and serve Him and long for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new and reverses sin's curse. No more pain, no more loss, no more death, no more disease. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Lesson number four, the God who tests us is also the God who provides for us in the midst of the test. Look at verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So God graciously spared Isaac and provided a ram for the burnt offering instead. You see, the great tester of our souls is also the great provider. That is one of the key lessons in this passage. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Earlier when Isaac asked his dad where the lamb for the burnt offering was, Abraham replied to him in verse 8, God will provide a lamb for us, my son. Let's keep walking. Whenever you are in the middle of a severe stress test, God will give you everything you need to make it through. Whether it's wisdom or strength or courage or peace, sometimes he provides a way of escape, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. So trust him. Keep looking to the Lord in prayer depending on His provision. He's right there with you. 
And for those of you who still might think that it is cruel, mean, and unloving for God to take His children through such a stress test of faith, I remind you that God has been through a much worse stress test. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Speaking of the crucifixion, Isaiah 53 verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Again, speaking of Jesus' death, Acts 2.23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Those verses clearly teach that it was God's sovereign will to have His one and only Son murdered. When Abraham had his knife in the air ready to plunge it into Isaac's body, God graciously stopped him. But when those Roman soldiers had their hammers in the air ready to plunge those huge spikes into Jesus' hands and feet, God did not stop them. And unlike my son or your son or Isaac in this passage... God's only son, Jesus, was absolutely perfect, sinless, and innocent. He in no way deserved such a violent death. And just as Isaac willingly cooperated with his dad and crawled up on that altar to die, so Jesus willingly cooperated with his father's plan and let himself be murdered for us on the cross. So the next time you think God is cruel and unloving for taking away something precious from you, remember that in a very real way, you took away something precious from Him. It was your sin and my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, was it not? And don't ever say God doesn't know what you're going through when you lose a loved one to death. God knows exactly what you're going through. So the next time he takes away something or someone precious to you, trust him. Run to him with your pain. He knows that pain well. A final lesson, number five. There is great blessing that comes from trusting God and sacrificially obeying him. Look at verses 15 to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord... Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. When you love God more than you love your most precious possessions, and you trust and obey Him, even when it hurts, there will be great blessing in your life. There will always be spiritual blessings, and of course, eternal blessings. But oftentimes, there are physical and material blessings as well, which we see here with Abraham. I began my message this morning talking about the stress tests of life, and why God allows them. This morning we have seen a couple of reasons why. The primary reason God tested Abraham like this was to give Abraham an opportunity to show that he trusted God whatever came. And to show that he loved God more than he loved his precious son Isaac. 
And there's a sense in which every life test is about that. Every trial we face eventually gets back to that issue. Who or what do I love the most? God or this person? God or this thing? God or this experience? God or this sin? God or myself? My kingdom or God's kingdom? Who or what is my greatest treasure? What idols do I have in my life right now? I'm convinced one of the purposes of trials is to show us our idols and to drive us back to God as our first love. Where do I find my deepest pleasure, joy, and fulfillment in this life? Every test and trial takes us back to that eventually. So God's message to us this morning is this. The stress tests of life reveal the true condition of our spiritual hearts. Thank goodness that our entrance into heaven is not dependent on us having perfect faith every time we are tested. Amen? Because none of us do. That's why we need the perfect righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord. And that comes to us through the gospel. But Jesus did have perfect faith every time he was tested. The greatest test being hanging on the cross for our sins. That was the ultimate stress test. Amen? So as you leave here today, this has been a tough passage. I realize that. I don't want you to kind of go out of here sad and discouraged. Unless God is showing you an idol that you need to give over to Him. But as you leave here today, thank God for the many gifts He lavishes on you every day. And don't feel ashamed or guilty for enjoying those gifts deeply. But as you enjoy those gifts, ask God to help you Not to make an idol out of any of them. But instead that you would find your greatest joy, pleasure, and satisfaction in Him, the giver. I am praying now for God just to show me how to enjoy Him more. I I must tell you, I don't feel like I enjoy God as much as I should. For you see, the chief end of man, the ultimate reason for our existence, is to glorify God. And enjoy Him forever. Amen? God help us. Oh Lord, we need Your help. We need Your help. We're sorry for our idolatry. You've blessed us with all of these gifts and You want us to love them and enjoy them. But it's just a fine line for us to step over and love them too much. Oh, Lord, give us grace. Would you show us more and more each day how to find our deepest joy in you? Show us what that looks like, Lord. I'm not sure all the time. Lord, help us to renounce our idols. Just help us, Lord. Give us grace to put things and people in their proper place. And that we would obey the first greatest command and love you with our total being. We want you to be our first love and our greatest treasure more and more each day, oh God. Please take us there as a church. Please take us there as a church.
And then with you as our greatest treasure, help us to obey the second greatest command and love our neighbor as ourselves sacrificially every day. So Lord, we we surrender everything to you now and just acknowledge you are our Lord. You own it all and you give and you take away and we will bless your name whichever you choose. In your name, Jesus, I pray 